are your lungs. They're cold. Yeah, my lungs, my lungs are still, I can still feel them. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was just, I was saying to Hannah actually about the, about the sort of, the, the 1K efforts. And we were talking about how those short, sharp efforts can often be the ones that just <laughs> absolutely ruin yeah. you. I think they're scarier than a longer effort sometimes because yeah. you know it's just going to put you in a place of just pain for so long afterwards. Or yeah. sometimes you're completely unaware it's going to hurt that much as well. <laughs> yeah, and then you're aware. Sometimes the, the best time you ever do is the first one first because time. you're naive, whereas the, after that you're like, oh, there's a little bit of trepidation here. I don't know how if I want to really go for this. Those mm-hmm. ergs are just evil. My, that was my trouble today. I spent all day worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can believe that. And I went about about quarter past two uh, this afternoon, and I was like, oh, right, just forget about it and just go. Let's oh. go. Because, yeah. Hannah, you you did short course sprinting, didn't you, with your yeah. canoe? So that must have been – I don't know what the distance is for that. Yeah, we well, I definitely was suited to the shorter distances. So predominantly when I was younger, I was always much better at the short stuff. And um, I guess I, I progressed through from a non-Olympic discipline in canoeing into the sprint side, which naturally had um, uh, two distances for women, which were over 200 and 500, which probably equate to a 40-second um, a and a, a two-minute event. So... Not pure sprinting when you look at other sports, but but fairly anaerobic. Um, and I definitely preferred the shorter of the distances. So, arguably, if we got to race over 100 meters, I would have done. <laughs> I would have been a bit better, I reckon, <laughs> in the final standings. But so, for those people that don't don't know you, a, a brief background in terms of we're not talking about running here; we're talking about canoeing, aren't we? Yeah, so we're or talking kayaking. About- Kayaking, which is under the uh, big umbrella of, of canoeing, to make it yep. confusing because under canoeing there's there's both kayaks and canoes for racing disciplines. Um, and yeah, I raced predominantly in the kayak category and um, it started off and have had a successful career in the wild water stuff. So we raced from A to B down rapids, um, similar to slalom, but without the gates. Loved the sport and that's what, what, it's what really hooked me into it and um, brought me into training. And then the the draw of the Olympic discipline brought me over to the flat water side where we, we race similar to rowing down the, the Boyd um, Regatta Lake and over a distance of either 200 and 500 in singles or crew boats. Okay. I think for me, it's an, a fantastic spectator sport. <laughs> Particularly, the, I think the, the shortness of the distance... <laughs> and the fact that it is just crazy, crazy paddling Power. and moving, and yeah, yeah, it's it's like I've always loved it as a spectator sport since when I was when I was a teenager watching um, not just the Olympics, just it used to. Be, I'm sure it used to be on more, like outside of major events. In yeah. I'm going to say in, in grandstand. Maybe, yeah, that that sort of in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, it used to be on a lot more than it is now yeah no I think it was fairly um popular and, and I think naturally a lot of a lot of those minority sports got more airtime when um there wasn't the the money and the draw that some of our current popular sports 
um, a track. So, you know, we had quite a congregate, uh, quite a consistent stream on Eurosport for, I think, uh, decades until just recently, unfortunately. But um, the world of YouTube and, and different broadcasting rights is kind of bringing it to people's doorsteps from a completely different avenue. But yeah, it is really exciting to watch. Um, and it is a flurry of of pretty strong, powerful individuals balancing on a really tippy sort of narrow platform trying to go as fast as possible. And I hadn't realised it's not just about the arm coordination. <laughs> There's a lot of foot coordination in terms of trying to keep on a straight line. Yeah, I mean, from the whole technical model, actually, it's derived from leg drive, which is one of those, it's a big secret, don't let anyone else know. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the power from your, your upper body just won't sustain um won't won't produce enough output and won't sustain the, the output for long enough due to the sort of muscle group size so yeah. actually if you're watching some of those guys and girls in the boats you'll see a lot of movement through their legs so they're driving left and right like a like a, a bike cycling action which yeah. transfers into their hips and then a lot of it is to do with how much um, rotation you're generating from your leg drive and then translating into your torso and and your arms almost just just holding on to the paddles for dear life and you're kind of creating ironically static shapes with your your arms so you're not push pulling as much you're just locking the blade and, and using everything else within the system to to drive forward as well as steering you do make a valid point we do have a tiny little rudder system between our toe uh between our feet just about our toe height which keeps us in a straight line do you know what that makes perfect sense particularly when you're in the last sort of five or ten meters after you've gone through the obstacles and things, and you're just sprinting to the line. Mm. The canoe slash kayak, <laughs> um, okay. it, it wobbles. Yes. So that makes perfect sense in terms of that hips and... Movement. Most, and I think yeah. ideally you want to be putting, we call it transferring as much body weight onto the stroke as possible. So, you know, the movement of the hips, the leg drive and the torso is is connected to the water with your paddle. But if the synergy and timing goes out by a fraction, the, the boat will offset and you, you, you'll have your, your body weight in the wrong point, point. And quite easily, it looks like it's it's falling apart. And it literally is from a technical model point of view. It's, it's fundamentally quite tricky at that point. But yeah. Yeah. like these one out, one minute, all out efforts, they're pretty um, brutal kind of keep everything moving when you want it to i can imagine and for the casual viewer you're just thinking wow it's just just all muscle all power but actually there's so much technique involved clearly mm. to sustain that yeah i think it's more of a technical sport i mean no arguably it's a physical sport and um, most of the competitors look pretty enormous um from a musculature point of view but it's a, it's a balance of aerobic power anaerobic power pure strength and and um and then the ability to actually apply it within a, a technical model which is probably a conundrum for fair fairly few sports i guess but it is um it's definitely one we have to balance don't take this question the wrong <laughs> way <laughs> fire away oh, the courses what are they called courses sorry i'm, I'm i, I enjoy it, <laughs> i yeah i enjoy watching but from the mm-hmm. technical point of view, I'll probably say some wrong <laughs> terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. Um, they're downhill. So, so the water the flows water, down. On the white water side, yeah. It's yeah. got a gradient to create the rapids. 
And on the flat water, we just race on a, on a completely still, hopefully still bit of water. Um, the wind often can create issues because of waves and turbulence. But yeah, the two different disciplines have two different um, water bodies, really. Yeah. So the downhill, the sort of white water... This is this is where I'm going to say something that might come across wrong. Does it make, how much difference does it make how fast you propel yourself forward because you're going downhill? Or is it mostly around steering? It's a bit of both. Um, and I think one of the simple analogies that I remember being taught was if you're moving at the same speed of the water or slower, the water's in control. And actually, if you're moving faster than the water, you have the ability to overcome the forces acting on your boat. So from a steering and a maneuverability point of view, if you are floating, it's actually a lot harder than if you were overpowering the speed of the water you're upon. But that makes those technical moves and, and the features really complicated sometimes because every time you get a bit of water on your on the deck of your boat, it slows you down and effectively you're trying to resist that. And it, it should be said, you were very good at it. I mean, it was all right. <laughs> I think winning a couple of gold medals at world championships is probably a bit more than just all right, isn't it? it I was fairly successful. And I, Modest. I, yeah. I think, I, I mean, arguably, I think I could have been more successful, but I went to chase another dream, which I wasn't successful in from an Olympic point of view. But, you know, the lessons and the reflections on both journeys for me were really powerful. So I can't. I can look back and be slightly disappointed by turning down opportunities there, but actually I, I, I tested different waters and enjoyed the process for sure. Yeah, I think being multiple world champions for anything <laughs> is pretty decent. <laughs> it is. It's funny when you're in the bubble, you don't really have that yeah. perspective at times. But yeah, yeah. I, um, I've been telling my athletes the same actually literally three hours ago. So I do, I am a hypocrite. I understand. <laughs> Because that, that, that's, that's a transition you've gone through, isn't it? Because you've gone from elite level performer to now elite level coach. Yes. As few years that. So my own previous experience of going from a player to a coach, I really struggled. I was a, still in a player's mindset trying to coach and it made me a really poor coach trying to step away. Has that been a challenge for you um I think I naturally started coaching at, at, whilst I was a competitor for sure um either through co-coaching on the water peer-to-peer -peer, or um I think it naturally suited my personality type to just want to assist and help others um I think I was really fortunate through my time to come across some fantastic coaches that weren't in my eyes at the, at the time coaches they were just fellow paddlers and they they, they imparted knowledge and, and gave advice and I think that is actually what coaching is so I think when I realized I was taking that transition I, I also realized I've probably been doing something similar um, I think throughout my career as a sort of senior athlete I've been trying to give back so I had some casual coaching um, roles to kind of support my athlete lifestyle is not the financially most viable option of life um so I was definitely doing bits and pieces with the juniors which I think working with with young uh passionate individuals but young individuals teaches you a lot about you know your 
ways of communicating and and um, instructing I think at that time and actually sort of got me to think outside the box quite a lot as well as just sort of exposing myself to different um, pathways so some individuals that paddled because their parents had paddled or some that were coming in through fast tracked and, and had no idea of what the sport actually meant and you know put the paddles upside down so it it kind of gave me a broad experience for sure and the opportunity that arose when I kind of was at the end or coming to the end of my paddling career was actually in um, para canoeing um, so disability sport but looking at at the high end the high performing end from the Paralympic side and actually although it's very similar in you know the the, um, <laughs> the output of going as fast as you can from A to B there was a whole new world for me to get my head around and and immerse myself in so I think those challenges opened up the thought process and it wasn't just a simple um, player to coach transition in any way. Massively. And because you had a significant shoulder, shoulder injury. Yep. I, I mean, I've had a quite a handful of injuries over my time. I'm, um, definitely either pushed myself too much or, or didn't listen to my body in the right ways, which I'm sure the physios are... <laughs> but I would um, echo the, the latter but I did suffer a traumatic shoulder dislocation when I was at a world cup race in 2016 Ouch. which um yeah it was uncomfortable um, at the time how did, how did that happen was that just sheer force of the water yeah the forces going through the through the path it was I mean it was partly me being in the wrong place uh, effectively and um, we were paddling, we were racing actually this this river in in the uh, south of France, um, Po in near the Pyrenees, and it, it was a, a long race, which wasn't my my strong suit, but we had a massive rapid at the beginning on this white water course, about eight minutes of flat to destroy yourself physically, and then an enormous rapid at the end, <laughs> um, and I think. There were two options on the rapid, a, a bit of a chicken shoot, which you could scoot down the left and avoid the the, the main sort of rapid in the main hole um, or, or the taking it on full front that you, you'd you want to. And I guess I'd always had in my mind I was going to run the, the main rapid and I think through fatigue ended up being drifted a little bit too far to the right um, as we went down that. And it just did that, that um, like physics does, it sucks the boat speed out again and again and again and, I think actually what happened was I dropped into the final hole knowing that I had no boat speed, but I needed to put a huge stroke in to pull myself through the stopper. But um, I actually was in the complete wrong space where my boat got popped down. I think at that point, my my blade was locked in the, the surface of the water because the purchase of these, these blades give you a lot of grip and it just ripped my shoulder out there and then. And then very nicely, it, it popped me forward. And I think that nature kind of meant I just had an anterior dislocation. And I think at the time I didn't realise I was trying to um, roll back up and use that arm as that lead arm, which would should normally come across under the water. And I remember thinking it's it's, uh, it's not, not doing working. what I want it to do. No, no. So then I um I thought I'd let go of my paddle with that hand and try and get out because the other beautiful thing of white water is it often recirculates, and I could feel that I was being sucked back into this rapid. So that was a, a minor panic going on. And you have a, a spray deck with a little um, eyelet that you can pull off. And that's how you generally free yourself from the boat. But again, I had used or decided to use my right dominant arm to try and do that. And it just 
it wasn't working in the way it should have worked. It was mal-coordinated and it actually ended up grabbing my, um, I had one of those wonderful Garmin GPS watches on my boat, you know, to, to track my heart rate and speed, which I was then in the dilemma of being under the water holding my 400 pound watch, <laughs> my paddles in the other hand, and not really understanding what was going on. So I had to um, uh, really kick out and, and manage to, to, to allow the deck to pop on its own um, accord. And, and then I, I was quite quickly realising that my arm was not in a comfortable space and, and swam to the bank. I mean, that's impressive. Having seen dislocations on a rugby pitch and the immediate, oh, and landing on the floor, you can't just land on the floor when you're in the water, can you? You, you no. can't just stop. you kind of got to get to safety because there's imminent danger of drowning. There's that. I think my, you normally try and rescue as much equipment as possible in paddling because you if you don't get your boat and your paddle, it's generally washed away and down. And at that moment, I did not rescue my boat. So I knew that there was something terribly wrong. Um, and I did try and get to the bank. I guess with paddling, especially in the, the, in the, the bottom of the Pyrenees, the water was bloody freezing. Yeah. So I, I assume the cold water shock meant the pain was, you know, subdued for a little bit because I didn't really feel it until I'd actually got out. And it was probably about two minutes later I realised I'd started to realise how much pain I was in. So There definitely must be a difference between those natural bodies of water and mm. the man-made ones that you would have in the Worlds and the, the Olympic competitions. Have you ever, what's the most scared you've ever been in a natural, <laughs> a natural body of water? That sounds pretty scary. That, the reason I'm asking is because that situation sounds pretty scary. <laughs> I think, I mean, that was scary. But in a way, I was out. There was safety. It was actually um, being quite big. And it was a natural rapid, but being quite a big natural rapid, um, there was a lot of spectators, so I knew quite quickly I was there. I think the fear was more, actually, at the time, I've done some serious damage and that's going to affect my paddling career because um, at that point, I'd probably... Well, in that year, I'd not made the Olympic team for the 2016 Games. Um, I, I think that would have been aspirational, but it was still disappointing. And actually, to have such a big injury <laughs> about three months after not making the selection, I was thinking that was going to be the total end to my, my paddling career. Um, but to be completely honest, when was I most scared? I think when I paddled a um, an unknown river when I was in Tasmania, um, we... Uh, myself and another British paddler over there before we were having a, a series of competitions and the locals um, informed us that there was this uh, amazing river at the top of this this sort of mountain region that we should go and paddle because there happens to be a release that day so we we drove up um, and we actually got the roads completely wrong so this was in 2010 when there was no um, iPhone GPS <laughs> map that you get now and we we went left instead of right so we ended up going down the dirt track that, that wasn't really a road and it took forever in our rear wheel drive car that just slid around um, at which point the sun was setting and we had no idea what the river was like um, from from our point in our uh, down river boats we'd been the first to um, uh, first descent so I'm sure it, it had been paddled by lots of other boat types but we we as a group of paddlers had no idea and we we got on and I was the only female of the group and we started padding down and it was completely pan flat 
um, for five minutes and then the next five minutes it started to get a bit you know shingly rapids and, and some small waves and um, the sun was really setting at this point and it was starting to get a bit chilly and um, as a group we kind of um, yo-yoed a little bit being I, I was much slower than the guys that I was paddling with and then out of the, the corner of my eye on the horizon this um, Austrian paddler who was from my eyes quite formidable and had fantastic skills was all of a sudden back paddling with sheer panic <laughs> <laughs> as we got to um, the serious rapid section of the river and actually um, you know once we were in it we were properly in it <laughs> and it was a bit of smash and a smash and survive to be honest and we had no idea how long we had um, the sun was setting quite quickly we, we didn't know whether to go left or right um, at some rapids and it's kind of when you're going down and you're hitting stuff more than you're then you're not it, it's definitely a bit worrying but at the same point at the end it was exhilarating so <laughs> to the end so the unknown was scary um and I guess at the time not realizing what we'd uh, let ourselves in for was probably a bit more concerning but yeah I think it's it's a fine line um sports like this that that you ride a, a wave of fear all the time and that's what draws you again and again and again I guess ironically so does that mean, and there's, there's lots of written around extreme sports. So let's say we're doing an extreme sport and um, wild water, I think that's pretty reasonable, <laughs> about finding states of flow. Mm. And have you found that in, in the wild water stuff, that there are days when you are just on it? Yeah, definitely. I think I read, um, I completely forgot the title, but discussed the um, states of flow quite recently. Um the beauty of wild water racing was you, you're aiming to go from A to B as fast as possible and you get to learn a course and you get to learn to, to make your way down those rapids as fast as possible. And actually you're repeating your runs in today's sort of technology. You can helmet cam it and watch it again and again and again, but there's nothing quite like that mental rehearsal. And I think if I look back, those states of flow are A, when you're on the water and you have that insane run, you know, you've pieced together and you've timed your strokes beautifully and you've rolled the boat away from that tiny wave and, and across that stopper and you just you just run with the speed that you want. Um, but you can also do that in that mental rehearsal and I think that was a, uh, a reflection of mine of how I could, I think not at the time realising what that was, but the state that you could sit, rehearse, feel the water feel the boat even though you're sat you know on a, on a park bench effectively um but yeah the, the beauty and the satisfaction of making your way down a white water course in as little effort as possible was the draw and the addiction the the reason you kept going back and again and again and again and the reality in my world was you you were often whoever won was per, normally the person who made the least mistakes because the acceptance that we're all human and you, you're in an unknown <clears throat> environment at times you have to be open to to it not going quite perf perfectly well when you, you you're maneuvering around white water but at the same time when you join sections together and rapids together under physical stress it was yeah surreal it's it introduces nature into the mm. sport because a lot of sports don't have nature to contend with. 
I'm not, not I'm to not, the point where it could kill you. No, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not to the point. Obviously, we're, we're, all sports have nature in them. But when you were talking there about the flow and the, how you just you, you visualize what you're going to do before you do it, it makes me think of like some of the world's best climbers. You know, kind of I will kind of watch, for example, people like Adam Ondra, um, the climber who. You know, he's got lots of videos um, out there on YouTube. And the way he <laughs> looks up at a mountain and moves his hands and his feet, and he does it for, for a long time and then does exactly the same thing when he's up there. Mm. And it just, it's that idea that it's just a movement after movement to be able to get through or get or overcome that piece of, piece of nature and when you were talking there that that reminded me of that yeah I, I think it's probably got a lot of similarities <laughs> um it, it's a it's a weird one in that you can go down the avenue that you've you've learned it you've paddled it you, you know where you want to be but you can also use those skills and experiences to to piece out where you want to go on a new bit of water or a new rapid um really powerfully and you don't even realize it you can visualize paddling on it because you've done feature after feature after feature that are either similar or, or or have elements that you can link with that bit but um the reality sometimes when you do it is different <laughs> yeah um, and that's often to do with how uh how it goes within the first couple of strokes i think it, it within my sport especially if you've lost that boat speed the water come becomes in control and actually that dictates where you go down the rest of the rapid with the confidence you can take by being on top of it and and maintaining that speed I think gives you an element that you've got to make some incredibly fast decisions um or decision making but it also gives you the ability to to be at one with the water because you are in charge of it yeah I suppose the difference between those two examples of of rock climbing and being in the fast flowing water is the water moves, the rock doesn't. <laughs> things <laughs> things can yeah, yeah, yeah. Things can be un You can more, take your time and take more, a minute yeah. on the rock face, can't you? But once yeah. you're in the in the water and it's going, you can't just go, oh hold on a second. I'm just gonna have a look at this route and that route. No, no, you're making that decision there and then, aren't you? Yeah, and that automaticity of, of knowing what you want to do and how you want to do it takes time. There is, we talk about feel and, and natural instinct, but um, I also believe something in that, like the 10,000 hour rule, you have to repeat, repeat, repeat to really hone in and, and make those, allow yourself to be able to make those decisions without even thinking you're making those decisions. And that's a trick. For sure. And you get a lot from just, standing and looking at the way the water goes i can now i think as a, a young naive paddler i would have gone <laughs> oh that's going to be wet or <laughs> you know or, um gosh i've no idea what's in there whereas again once you've done that or, or you've paddled x number of rivers and, and different types of water you, you get to understand what what features are caused by um, and you get to understand how features affect your boat yep. doesn't mean it's always like that um there's always a surprise somewhere in nature something can create something that doesn't look like it should and um that's quite often when we get caught out yeah. so does that 
influence your going circling back to talking about the coaching now does that perspective that you've got influence your coaching in terms of you just mentioned you were young and naive and I'll just jump in the boat and wing it I'll just go down <laughs> deal with it as it comes how do you bring that perspective that you just mentioned there to your coaching now of people who are coming through yeah I guess in two worlds I guess in my para canoe world we don't paddle down white water so you don't yeah. have to necessarily think about that but when I do do some coaching within the wild water areas I think it's a lot about other education um so challenging thoughts and um understanding of the water not just paddling it and doing um and sometimes that's through conversation um questioning open questioning sometimes it feels like an interrogation with youngsters trying to get a, an answer out of them but yeah um, quite often on some of the courses we get now especially man-made ones uh the water isn't always on so really interestingly you can look at the underpinning features sometimes you know very tiny and insignificant um from a construction point of view but you add 300 cubic meters of water onto it with a slight gradient and it completely transforms it and we quite often more times out of um not we get more opportunity to observe empty rivers or empty courses i guess than full rivers and it's it's interesting to just start that conversation around what is or what could happen in in this um environment yeah i was going to ask does rain have a big play big role to play um in terms of white water raft uh canoeing kayaking it does on some rivers so i think um Historically, it's been always naturally fed rivers um, from a sport and a discipline. We probably uh, began racing on on natural rivers, you know, especially because we'd race over a short distance, but historically over a long distance of like 15, 20 minutes. So the man-made courses we see in canoe slalom are generally one minute to two minute long. So we'd have to go and find some beautiful natural rivers. Um, so yes uh rain fall can have a drastic effect on that um both good and bad i mean if it's um if there's no rain and if we need water the rivers are unpaddleable sometimes if there's too much rain they are unpaddleable for other reasons and that there's a huge range in the middle and different rapids and different rivers are suitable at different water levels and i suppose it depends also, oh sorry no go Hannah. i was gonna say we've also got the option now of of especially a lot of man-made courses, um, which are driven by pumps. Mm. So uh, fantastic as they are, they are expensive, <laughs> um, but they offer a different version of white water, but they offer it generally quite an accessible version of white water because, um, you know, topography of, of white water rivers is generally mountainous rural regions rather than the classic Thames, which can get pretty meaty at times, but not, doesn't have the gradient and the rockfall that would form a rapid like you would see in the Pyrenees or the Alps. So yeah. the natural, uh, the unnatural courses, sorry, the man-made courses can make a huge white water stadium on the edge of London now. Yeah. I, w- I was just going to say how just in terms of the rain, if you were in the Alps, the Lake District, you know, kind of mm-hmm. and anywhere like that, even if it isn't raining, it might have rained two or three days ago and that water is still coming down. And still having an impact further down the mountains mm-hmm. in terms of the rivers. Yeah, no, it can. Um, 
it's like a little weird paddling science. <laughs> you, some rivers really respond to, to rainfall rapidly, depending on their catchment area or how high up they are as a um, on, on the river bed, I guess, um, if they're near the source or, or near the end of their, their sort of uh, journey. Um, so some rivers rise and fall within an hour of rain. Some it needs to seep in, travel down the tributaries and, and join and that can take up to two days of a lag effect. And yeah, it's a it's a weird world and you get to know when and how long you might need rain full as well as potentially how much and um, and for, for a long period of time, if it's a single day or, or a week, it can make quite a difference. I know this is definitely not the remit of British canoeing. <laughs> <laughs> or your limit. <laughs> um, but in terms of just river safety and these things we're talking about just generally in terms of mm. how people perceive bodies of water, rivers, lakes, does does British Canoe get involved in anything like that with, with education? I mean, yeah, absolutely it's part of British Canoe's remit, <laughs> I guess, okay. arguably. <laughs> um, in a respect that if you're in a in a boat, you you'd want to be or have access to educational bits and pieces that make you safe as a water user. Yeah. Um, so I, I, they have literally as a organization just gone through a safety review. Um, what do they offer? How good are their resources X, Y, Z. So it's interesting you mention it, but not every person you see on a river in a, in a boat inflatable or plastic yeah. or racing is a member of British canoeing. And I think it's, it's a really tricky one to police and it's hard. Some of the waterways are like the canal network um, looked after or overseen by the, um, I'm going to get this completely wrong, but the, <laughs> the, the water, <laughs> way, the water people, <laughs> the waterway people. Yeah. Those guys, but they have a certain set of rules, whereas a lot of the rivers are open access and, you know, people fought and uh, legally they they should be but the safety aspects often come down to individual water users and um, often we uh, underestimate the conditions at times but whitewater rapids whitewater rivers are often well signposted because of their natural danger I think you'll be very unlucky or incredibly naive to come across something that you without a small amount of research wouldn't have been made aware of hopefully <laughs> I hope your club was Bradford Avon, wasn't it? My starting club was Bradford Avon, I think. Um, yeah, not Bradford Avon Canoe Club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a particularly dangerous or, um, well, okay, I'm sure it's dangerous, but it's a pretty flat river until you get to uh, Avon Cliff. There's a bit of a weir there, but otherwise it's quite yeah. flat, isn't it? It's, yeah, and that's the majority of the rivers in the UK, um, flat bits of water held up with weirs or, or locks to kind of create different gradients and bits and pieces down the river but yeah I started off learning on flat water definitely didn't begin in a wild water setting I think I came across a, a coach at Bath Canoe Club who um, introduced me really um, actually at the time when I was 15 16 gave me a social group which aside of white water flat water team boating you know it was just a, a draw of peers really did you do other sports at that age as well? I was, yes, I was fairly sporty. <laughs> I think um, nothing overly serious. I was part of a generation that played football when we were young and then had to stop when we reached a certain age because we couldn't no longer play a mixed team and there were no female 
football clubs um, at that point. So that um, that quest and, and stopped. And then I was always quite active at school with the school teams, but nothing serious. We were just as a family quite outdoorsy, and you know we went for for bike rides and and walks within the forest sort of region, always swimming, um, but nothing massively serious until uh, I went canoeing with a, uh, a local friend at the local paddle uh, canoeing club how did that most of the time swimming <laughs> how did how did that first canoeing encounter come about was it just a whim was it just a let's give this a go pretty much I think um, uh, a friend in my school year uh, had gone the week before with her sister um, and their parents had, had sort of found a, a, a come try it morning or, or the club session on a Saturday um, it was Saturday afternoon actually 2pm on Saturday um, I'm sure it still is 2pm at Saturday for an Avon Canoe Club um, Probably. and um, yeah we used to always we were quite social we do a lot of river swimming as teenagers um, on the Avon it's it's, it's quite a cool it's, there's quite a few wonderful little spots so we thought why not go canoeing and probably swimming so we started to do that a lot um did it for a summer so the school summer holidays six weeks and stopped you know we just did it then and didn't didn't carry it on you know the winter and school kind of kicked off and didn't actually take it up again until the next summer um which we went back and became a bit more regular and a little bit more uh, capable of staying in the boats i guess um and I think it's a racing canoe club. We, we we went in skinny boats and we paddled four, five, six miles within a session quite quickly, you know, just exploring, um, sometimes doing some little intervals. But um, yeah, it was it was the beginning of, of kind of trying to make something go fast. And I think that that was tough and sort of had me hooked. And then then we did a little race and that was it. I never, <laughs> I never looked win? back really. Did you win? I don't remember. I don't think so. No, <laughs> I remember it was a four mile race and that was long. Wow. So, four miles. That's yeah. How old, how old were you at this point? Uh, still 14. At, still About at 14. school. Yeah. 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 Still at school. Fairly young. Um, but yeah, I think. Is, is it a difficult sport to get into? Sorry, that's a, that's a big question. There's a lot of, <laughs> angles to come at from that point yeah. because you need access to water you need the equipment you need I imagine at four you need someone to take you there yeah <laughs> you, know, you need support I think all of those elements are really important I guess canoe clubs you, you know you have to find a club normally um and there's a, a wealth of clubs across the country but they all generally do different things so there's a lot of racing clubs that I could signpost you to, but there's equally as many recreational clubs. There's as many whitewater clubs in, in certain areas. There's as many um, canoe polo clubs, um, mixed sort of water sports clubs. And it just almost depends where you live to what is on your doorstep. So that determines how easy it is to get into racing canoeing. Um, and it's not something that comes up in the school curriculum either, is it? No. No. And it's often something people have done. <laughs> you know, you've gone on an outdoor ed trip, you will have gone canoeing. Yeah. You've gone to centre parks, you will have gone canoeing. But as a sport, it's not it's not huge. Um, again, it depends where you live. Some 
canoe clubs do have ties with schools, but they're very, very few and, and far spread. And I think mm. it's a reason that we don't necessarily have the athlete calibre that we might do within our sport at high level because all the athletic kids will get sort of picked up by rugby, swimming, um, football. But it is, it's it's a funny one because, as I mentioned earlier, when I was probably about that age mm. at school in the early 90s, I loved watching it. <laughs> like, I absolutely loved it. It was fantastic, but I never thought to do it. Maybe because it just wasn't... It was something that other people did, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a funny one. It's, maybe it is geographical. I think it's sometimes geographical and, and sometimes um, how easy is it to do? <laughs> it's, it's super easy to do football and rugby when there's millions of clubs and opportunities and invitations. And sometimes, um, especially at the moment uh, and, and following the London Games, I know particularly with Bradford and Avon Canoe Club, we had our Ed McKeever who did incredibly well and started off there. And there was an influx of people that wanted to go paddling and there just wasn't the capacity. Um, so the opportunity with, you know, people and availability makes it even harder at times. We went to the same school, but um, I didn't ever think about going canoeing. No. no. It was rugby, rugby, rugby. But um, yeah, we have, would have had the same opportunities, but it was not something that I thought of doing or chose to do. I guess it's the same with most things. You have to make the effort to get there. And once you get there, mm. you take off. Yes. But sometimes it's tricky. It, you know, as a sport, it does involve travelling to um, to go and do it, to, to race, to especially in the whitewater world, to go and paddle on whitewater. Living in Wiltshire doesn't necessarily um, yield a great <laughs> great amount of white water on your doorstep unless it floods every now and again which I, say, I can't think of anywhere off the top of my head in, in no I mean uh, arguably the weirs you can do yeah you can do skills and drills um you know you've got we have fantastic weirs going down I know I think as a, we used to joke when we were juniors at Bath Canoe Club and we'd go and do uh, a shoot pony weir session <laughs> how many how many um holiday albums are we in just playing around on the Pontney Weir steps because that would have been highly entertaining for some but um, yeah not many not many opportunities at all so. and I, I would link my career you know from enjoying the sport and progressing into competition because of a couple of very passionate people that took me across the country and gave me chances that my parents actually didn't or couldn't at the time because one of three children life. it's not fair yeah. yeah it's a life so you know other reasons but a local club coach um who's now at Melksham which is Wiltshire Youth Canoe Club if anyone wants to join that I'd recommend that <laughs> um showed you know gave us opportunities as a, as a group of <laughs> youngsters so without him it wouldn't have ever progressed is there a lot about visibility of the sport though so just going back to something you said about how people push the football they push the rugby in the schools there's so many sports, like literally so many sports, but only mm. a tiny proportion of sports are promoted and made available to people outside of the people who are prepared to look that little bit further. Mm. 
and I guess it's hard from a you look at a school curriculum that's where it would sit and you'd get access to but fundamentally we can't include every sport I guess but I know as an organization British Canoon are doing a fantastic job at publicizing getting out on the water um they as an organization have uh boomed shall we say over the last sort of five to ten years with with a new leadership style and the use of social media and website stuff is is fantastic the go paddling website gives you so many opportunities um from races to 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 recreational paddlers and they saw a huge increase after lockdown because everyone who couldn't work or could work from home sorry in the heat wave realized they could go on the river so yeah the popularity boomed (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. You you talked, or, or it was mentioned at the start, about um, social media. And I guess things, we had um, a parkourist, Toby Ziga, come on, and they have a massive YouTube following for that. And I guess things like um, Red Bull kayaking and that sort of stuff will help bring or increase that visual appeal that then maybe makes people go, oh, I quite fancy having a go at that. Have you noticed anything with that? in terms of social media presence? Ooh, uh, definitely some increases in social media presence, I think. Um, yeah, when you get some big names like Red Bull, Adidas, um, promoting racing or sponsoring paddlers, you get you get a little bit more coverage. Um, I think as a sport, we will always be a minority. <laughs> it's a tricky one. I don't think we can compete on, the, on another level from a racing point of view, but um, there's definitely more awareness of it. It's just, it sounds crazy, but it's a complicated sport. We have, um, under our umbrella of canoeing, I think nine or 11, sorry, maybe competitive disciplines. Gosh. <laughs> to the, the naked eye, you know, you're all paddling, but from freestyle sort of um, boating where you're doing tricks in, in stoppers to, to pure flat water sprint racing, or there's a marathon distance that races over longer races and has portages and and team formations when you go into canoe polo there's there's a wealth of it but it's it's at the same time confusing but it gives a a huge range of opportunities if you did get involved so what does your role entail now working with the para canoes and and what they are aiming to do so para um the para canoe guys got inclusion into the 2016 games so before that it was a fairly new discipline I think came onto the international scene in 20 I should probably get this right but 11 um, as a discipline it then evolved um, much like any para sport the classification system and sort of racing categories goes through a period of uh, reflection and, and data gathering to see how will they best fit um, within the, the sport and the sport in demand so over that cycle it really took off um, and, and with an inclusion into the games it gives it uh, it gives it presence on the Paralympic scene but it also gives it funding which means you can build a program around it um, yeah. arguably the British guys so the, the program was set up fairly early um, and I think they were quite instrumental in in guiding its evolution both on the international scene um, as well as building a team here so they're arguably I think they are uh, without a doubt the most successful team year on year they've they've topped the medal table um, again and again and again and actually 
my role now is to help uh, continue that trend with no pressure um, but within a uh, an academy setting so uh, the development side of um, the team so looking at um, supporting guys and girls that aren't quite meddling so the top level you know it's it's a brutal world but in the para sport you kind of class as podium when you are on the podium um, so got a couple of individuals that will be fighting for those final spots um, but I'm also looking at bringing in new talent and, and almost teaching um, a sport a new sport to individuals so we have a big remit within para sport of um, talent transfer and talent ID so guys and girls that have done other sports um, with a high training background can cross over and this is a prime time in the cycle following the games um, but we also run well we run the English Individual Sport runs and UK Sport also run lots of talent campaigns to sort of um, open up the doors um, for disability sports at high performance so we're currently undergoing a campaign of of interested individuals that want to come and try either canoeing, uh, power canoeing, power rowing, and or power lifting. So that's really interesting because just that point about people who performed well, just generally at whatever mm. sport it is, and who've got the physicality, the mindset, the ability to apply themselves is something we've talked about in previous episodes about that non-specialised non-specialisation is a coach's dream because mm. you've got someone who is physically able and physically capable you just need to, I say just <laughs> I'm not underplaying your, uh, your you role just put a little bit of specific sporting <laughs> stuff on top and it's grand yeah. all, all you need to do is teach them the t- technique which is easy isn't it yeah but the <laughs> The point is that t- it's really interesting that you said that because it's something that's been touched upon in the past by other people, which sort of reinforces that point of when people are at a point where maybe they need to choose a direction if they have a good foundation and a yeah. good underpinning of ability and mindset, they can kind of put that almost you, anywhere. You can fast track them, I think, is the. Yeah. the word and um i think it's interesting because some of the sports their time frame of fast tracking can be as as short as 18 months wow. but actually depending on other sports and the strength and depth of the the, the field of play you know international and domestic mm-hmm. it can take a bit longer um yeah. and it's a tricky one sometimes because we have some fantastic crossovers so in the past we've had some amazing um Paralympic swimmers come to our team and because they're, they're physically incredibly fit already um, but they have a feel for the water they've excelled at yeah. rapid rates um, whereas we've also had some fantastic athletics individuals um, that physically trained from a sprinting background so that neuromuscular sort of ability of what we're asking and what the sport would want but the feel of the water in an unstable platform is completely different um, again you see a really fast progression but from a slightly different side because um, you're spending more time on on actually the, the confidence and the feel rather than necessarily linking or producing um, explosive power behind a, 
you know endurance swimming background so yeah it, it, every individual gives it a different um puzzle to put together with some of the pieces guess, already involved yeah a lot of the time you've got an athlete but it's adding the technique and the, and the technical aspects to that yeah um massively and then training and training and training I think exposure exposure <laughs> yeah canoeing is a a sport of a lot of repetitive motions um at a really hard physical output so the technical model will be stressed the physical output is stressed and you're asking well we ask um individuals to do that over a really short period of time so if you muck up the start you you've lost the race and at the same time if you're falling apart too much within the last 20 meters you'll lose the race so we're asking an awful lot um in a short period of time how do you protect those overuse injuries because it's a very you've got repetitive just said repetitive movement and it's the same movement all the time so there's no rest in that we rest a lot in the uh, sessions <laughs> we don't just continually go on and on um, no but but that's a lot about the physical conditioning off off the water um i mean i guess if you take the the water training we, we don't do continuous stuff um and i think the para canoeing training philosophy is a lot more quality shorter um duration efforts than the um, olympic counterparts partly because of the, the general background of the athletes um and sometimes the that the events that they race on are, are different, but there's a lot more repetitive, continuous training on that side. But do they can be paddling for for one, one and a half, two hours continuously for an aerobic session, whereas the Paralympic guys we quite often break that up into two, three sort of minute long pieces and then and then short rest intervals and repeat that. Um, not to say there's one right way, but if you're introducing anyone into a new movement pattern just smashing it for hours on end doesn't often yield a, a good technical model <laughs> um, or good happy joints and um, I know being a, a Paralympic sport we get a fantastic support team behind the scenes within um, the use of the EIS so through our English Institute of Sport we get to we, we, we buy them in but we have practitioners within physio and strength and conditioning capacities that um, have put in a lot of work off the water to become incredibly strong, but also endure. So we, as a program, have two to three robustness sessions a week, um, okay. which look at shoulder capacity work um, and stabilisation, trunk conditioning. Because that must have been coming back from the injury you had because the shoulder is not a stable joint, it's a really shallow joint mm. and it's a really complex joint with all the structures that are in there. To come back from that anterior dislocation, which probably ruined some of the ligaments, some of the, the cartilage in that joint, to make that stable and comfortable to go through the movements you've gone through and get the confidence to use it, that must have been quite an enduring process in itself. Yes, it was quite a long rehab, <laughs> rehabilitation. Um, I guess I was fortunate at the time to be a UK sport-funded athlete, so I got um, seen by uh, Professor Leonard Funk, who did a 
bony bank art, a latage procedure. So um, the bits that were destroyed got bolted back on, I guess, in a crude way. And the bits that were torn got sewn up. So um, it was quite a procedure at the time. Um, not the, the simplest of recovery processes, but I think because I was um, a funded athlete, I got um, fantastic support through EIS physios, both at Bisham Abbey and at Bath University. And I think the biggest breakthrough for me was when around eight, seven weeks, eight weeks post-op, I went to the in the IRU, which is an intensive rehabilitation unit for um, sport injuries. It's at Bisham Abbey. Um, I stayed there two weeks. Um, and that was probably the biggest breakthrough after sort of doing a lot of the the basic isometrics and, and range of motion movements or trying to get it moving. Um, I'd kind of gained almost 80% of the range, but not full range oh. um, at that point. And I think part of it was, that, as you said, the fear. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do remember the, the IRU physio, whose name completely escapes me, but he was a fantastic runner and a running coach. If you look him up somewhere, but, um, he, he was he told me to hang off of it so, wow because that's of a big cap- brave thing because of the capsular tightness it was restricted by that but the only thing that was really going to stretch it out and he did say he was too weak to to do the capsular stretch but was my body weight to a certain point so it kind of it was partly psychological but also partly needing a yeah. a reasonable weight behind it but yeah it was it was a pretty transformational two weeks um and I think I got to spend it with a couple of fantastic um sports people so you'd have three athletes in there at once um I in my first week I had um a rugby player female rugby player my second week I had a skier both with ACL injuries but throughout the whole period of time I spent it with um the para rower and paracyclist David Smith yeah. Um, it was quite a story to tell and I think yeah. actually um, selfishly <laughs> that was probably the most powerful part of that is actually you know uh, working through what we were all working through but having um, amazing stories and people around you at the time so. and does that inform your practice now with your um, your athletes it makes me quite stern about the shoulder robustness. Mm. I think as athletes, we're pretty poor with those um, soft training sessions, if we call it that. Accessories. Prehab, the accessories, that's the word. The prehab yeah. work, you know, um, especially when it's 20 reps with a theraband, it generally isn't that exciting, unfortunately. Um, but I've had a thousand pull-aparts <laughs> before. That was boring as hell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my days. Afterwards, yeah. the days afterwards. Oof. yeah the worst ons ever absolutely <laughs> but, um, at, the time, at the time it's the most potentially one of the most boring things you think you could be doing yeah i so, often yeah, think definitely. i often think i was like should i should i use a, a heavier band by the end you're like no i should not have um can we just take a moment to mention dr leonard funk and how cool that name is yes it's yeah. not bad no um just in terms of something that I was going to ask right at the very beginning, but we sort of went off in different different directions, is just in terms of the training, you, you touched on that shoulder robustness and we sort of quipped about the, 
boring things that ultimately help. Mm. What, what does training look like for someone who canoes and kayaks? Where, where's the focus? Because you mentioned it isn't just the arms. You've got the legs, the hips, the, the, the core. You've, you have everything. How, how are the boat? Yeah, yeah, what does it look like? What, is it, what does training look like? I guess, I, I mean, it depends who you ask. Um, in Britain, we're, we're very much, we stay on the water all year round, but um, some countries go off the water in the winter and do complete and utter physical training off, off water from um, cross-training, conditioning work with, with running and, and swimming, so complete cardiovascular sort of output. Um, but we also spend a lot of time in the gym, so we look um, we look at across a series of exercises, but we love a good push pull and a chin up are our sort of standard go tos. And um, we get to a point that we've got fairly good absolute numbers across those um, of those exercises. But fundamentally, they're completely useless. If we don't connect it. So yep. um, posterior chain, some key lifts. Um, awful lot of core and, and glute work to keep that postural side of things but a lot of accessory stuff because a lot of it is conditional um to create that frame that i've talked about at the beginning in the technical model you need yeah. whole body strength um but yeah it is tough i think a standard training week is six days a week um again we at the moment do two session a day sort of standard practice um i've had coaches that we do three sessions being two waters in a gym or, or water run gym. Um, and it depends who your coach and their philosophy is really. And actually what you're trying to do. Um, but we try to generally equate to sort of around 18 to 24 hours of physical training a week across gym and water or cross training parameters. Um, so, not that I'm obsessed with numbers, <laughs> but it would be interesting to know because you want to put up and you think it's quite easy until you have to try and pull your body weight up. You see a lot of people struggle. I would imagine that you're hitting some high double figure numbers, strict pull-ups. Yes. And we also, we, we take or it weighted pull-ups. Yeah, we go weighted. <laughs> we'd, we would, um, like it's a minimum gone. standard was trying to hit over 1.5 relative. So one and a half, your body, body weight, weight plus half of it. Um, I think uh, my personal PB was 42 kilos extra, uh, about 60, 65, 66 kilo body weight. So relatively good, but I wasn't the best as well. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, so I can't do I, 42 kilograms and that's <laughs> not even half my body weight. <laughs> Damn I, it. I can't do it anymore, but um, it, it definitely took some practice. I think right now I've got a uh, one of my Paralympic guys. His 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 goal, and I think he got within about two inches of it, is to do a hundred kilo pull up. How um, heavy is he? He's a relatively. He, he's quite. He's like ninety kilo chappy. Actually, he's quite tall. <laughs> quite a big guy, but yeah, it's a. So that's I that's my way. Many I can't. I can't even process the idea. <laughs> trying Paul, to. That's, that's kind of. Me on your back plus your son. 
You know, tomorrow morning I'm going to strap 100 kilograms <laughs> yeah. to myself and try and, do, try and move won't. myself. I probably slightly. won't advise that. Sometimes it's just hard to do the lifting, you know, the squatting back up. <laughs> so, just yeah. to put the weight on you is hard yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, we definitely go for, for, for quite a lot of high strength work. So um, one of our key exercises is bench pull, which is another weird exercise that no other sport do. But looking so, to clear 100 kilos at that with the in the in the female category and the so it's a flat you want a flat bench led down and bringing it up so the yeah, rowers do that as well don't yeah. they yeah yes yeah yeah looking at, at numbers within the females of of sort of 90 to 100 kilos if you're if you're strong um and then once yeah. you're strong you start <laughs> taking a step back and, and enduring sort of high repetitions or relatively high repetitions at relatively high percentages so repetitive so i'm thinking what i do with a pen knee row and i wonder how much that what that crossover is onto a bench but um yeah you can uh, try it <laughs> i'm uh, i'm not strong enough to be a, a, a kayaker <laughs> at this moment sprint, in time a sprint kayaker i think again sprint we're a pocket of, of, um, of the paddling community yeah but i definitely think if any <laughs> if if anything i think we've both realized that we're not going to be olympic kayakers <laughs> masters masters come on and there's plenty of other regions of, of paddling you can do without being insanely strong but i think it's useful sometimes to see what those numbers are because otherwise it's just a very abstract or oh, they're just strong but actually when you consider as a female you're putting 100 kilograms that's bigger than the average male adult you know that's shifting a lot of weight um and it's it's a lot of training you know you are a serious serious physical athlete let alone technical athlete that's a lot of time and dedication and that's you know on on a frame that is probably 65 kilograms it's it's a lot yeah it's it's quite a lot (laughs) you're being modest again aren't you about those gold medals yeah i'm all right yeah it's funny, Paul. Before you before you jumped on, because obviously you were late. Um, <laughs> we we were talking about how it's actually difficult for people to understand those sort of numbers unless they've tried them, yeah. unless they've got an idea of what that feels like. And I think we talked about it a few weeks Please ago. Do not do not try a hundred kilo chin up. Why not? Oh, it's just start with the body weight thing. Oh, I can <laughs> I do body weight. That's yeah, we do that. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm just yeah. going to put that out there. No, no, we're an advocate we're... that anyone walks away from here and tries 100 think, kilo or 40 I, kilo chin up. <laughs> I think my max chin up weight is 36 or 38 kilos. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, 30, you're 30, polite. Thank you. 30. I might. Uh, I tried 48 and I don't think I've got that up because I've got two 24 kilogram kettlebells which are strapped to me. But um, yeah. Yeah, you wait. many people that try <laughs> weighted to <laughs> so I'm quite impressed. <laughs> it's part of our training regime that goes through. Yeah. It's, it's just that understanding of what that feels like, even, even at a low weight. Mm. A lot of, I'm not even going to say a lot of people the vast majority of people don't know how that feels like to be able to pull the body the body weight through that plane of motion never mind 
think about half the body weight it, yeah. or their body weight plus you know kind of whatever percentage and I think that's what our conversations are trying to draw out and help to help to draw attention to and I hope some people are listening to this who haven't tried that and don't know what it feels like and might try, not with 100 kilograms, we will just put out there, but just try to feel what that feels like and then work up towards that because it is something to work towards. And you it's don't just... Work towards, yeah. I think it's a really interesting point though but most people just ne never tried it and it's easy to watch the olympics or sports on tv that put these guys and girls on pedestals and make them look superhuman if anything from my reflection of doing sport and starting at bradford and avon canoe club swimming and going through and you know i i personally i missed going to the games by by one single spot at the qualification you know and i've done it all right in my white water paddling side of things but I've seen some incredible people and some incredible athletes over the time and they are all human. They just put their mind and a, as you mentioned, quite a lot of time of their life towards something and achieving something. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it's fantastic, but they're just humans and maximizing the, the human body. Yeah. Sometimes the, frustrating to see people cliche, not maximizing the human body. <laughs> absolutely. It's the cliche of Usain Bolt. Oh, you won, you won the, 100 meters in 9.58 seconds no he didn't he won it in 20 years because mm -hmm. that's how long he spent training or whatever it was uh, i think it's important to recognize that actually everybody's normal they've just done a, a abnormal amount of effort to get to those points and perhaps i think that's one of the key takeaways with, with this is actually we all start from somewhere we start in a local, local club and there is that that point that actually says well, why can't that be me winning a gold medal just because I'm in little old breath when I even approach that? It could be me. I just need to do that work. And now you are in a coaching position, which is at a very, very high level. And there's a, there's a lot to be said for that, but you have to apply yourself and you have to start. Yes. You have to want it. I think the thing with any human endeavor is you've got to probably push yourself in a space that is uncomfortable be it getting up early before the sun's risen or doing an all-out effort knowing it's going to be horrendous at the end or, or during yeah. <laughs> quite quickly at the last of the start um, yes and there's a difference between i want it and or well i quite like that that looks nice but there's a very it's yeah. a different spectrum isn't it yeah um and sometimes I think it's it's trainable. Um, it depends on the environment and the people around you. Uh, the support network we kind of people talk around is is massive. It's your peers when you start off, or um, your parents who who take you there and tell you you have to win that race, otherwise you're not getting a lift home. Is one end of the spectrum. Telling you, telling you to enjoy it and 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 do your best is is like that supportive grounding and actually you know yeah. it has an influence and I think for both positive and negative they don't always work out how they should do because you know as a psychological side of sport is is also massive so 
But is that something you work on with your athletes, the mental side? Yes, we have a, a fantastic sports psych that works with us. Um, and I think part of coaching is, you could argue it's, you know, you sit and you write an annual macro plan for, for the perfect training and um, you, you work out what every session should look like and every rep should should feel like. But if you don't um, talk through the, the motivations and the execution of it, it's pointless and actually from that conversation there's, there's an awful lot that is deep rooted within someone's psyche that you need to to either crack and, and come to a level of understanding because that's the only way you're going to get the best out of a fellow human is to to talk and communicate um, and then the sports psych you know he'll, he's got fantastic um, inroads to dealing with pressure understanding how we cope um, when we're at um, extreme ends of of, of our comfort levels um, and also you know what are we trying to do as humans we love to plan we love rituals um, we love habits and racing is doesn't happen very often so how can we plan and prepare that the best we can within training or, or within um, periodized planning in a in a way of exposing them to, to pressure and, and everything but I think coaching is more about the psychologically psychological side of of getting someone from A to B than the, the physical and the technical side of things, for sure. So the people who come to you or get presented to you, <laughs> yeah. why, why, why do they do it? Do they do it because they want to excel at an elite level or do they do it because they just want to do something that they enjoy. Um, I suppose that by the time they get to you is probably the more elite level yeah. side of things to, to be training and go through that funded route. But yeah. in terms it of could... people accessing the sport through the people who find people who might be good at something, and, and I'm, this question isn't probably specific to canoeing, it's probably specific to or non-specific and applies to, to, to all sports. Yeah. It's a tricky one. I think, you know, every individual has got their own reasons. <laughs> I think arguably you have to both want it from that elite level and, and, and have that unbelievably strong competitive streak in you. Otherwise you wouldn't push yourself there. But I think fundamentally if you don't enjoy it and you're doing it, you know, say 20 hours a week plus the lifestyle around it, which you generally don't do the normal, you know, socializing outdoor um, bits and bobs that most people do in their world of, of work and, and, and normal life in that respect. You've got to enjoy it and you've got to embrace it. Um, I think it's a funny one. I think um, within the, the performance world, we, we, we don't get people delivered to us, but those guys and girls are at the top of their game by the time they come into the programme. And that's kind of, you know, we, we will have got the creme of the creme, arguably, you know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fairly exclusive club, high performance sport, right or wrong. That's the nature of the beast. Um, but within the actual sport, I think if you're open to, to wanting to develop, you often find like-minded people and you're attracted to that within a training group or a club environment. The guys and girls that, that want to 
to have a nice time and float around and, and enjoy the sport for other reasons and the guys and girls that want to drive on and either create physical excellence or, or achieve something generally congregate as well so it must be different because it's quite an individual sport I would imagine so whilst you're in a big group actually you don't have the team dynamic of trying to have 15 people on the team that are working in a harmonious way so I suppose they still need coachability but actually there's performance rule everything at the end of the day in terms of physical performance yeah I think team dynamics are massive <laughs> in a yeah, way oh, I agree. having a, a training group we we um we don't we don't have enough days in the hours in the day sorry to train everyone individually and I think it's a bit um some people can train on their own but there's a very small handful that can and I think a lot of people need other people around to to push that tiny extra bit um I think the the little bit of sprinting so not in the para canoe world but in sprinting you can race in crew boats um which you arguably don't have to get along <laughs> Um, but you do have to paddle with synergy and you do have to come together and work out how to make this boat run. And um, it is uh, like the dark art of canoeing. It's not always the two fastest individual paddlers that make a crew boat the fastest or four individual paddlers because there's this ability to get the boat to run smoothly, to work together in harmony. It's it's really fundamentally quite tricky and actually it offers a whole different avenue of people that buy into working with others in a world that is dominated by individuals within mm. canoeing arguably it's a, it's a tricky one it's fundamentally a um a head scratcher for coaches sometimes when they're trying to work out the best formulation for crews but yeah, yeah team dynamics are powerful both within a an individual sport because we we work as a team i think the canoeing the power canoe world had this philosophy of a project nine for the past cycle. So yeah, everyone's an individual and we have individual boats, but we have nine categories that we were trying to qualify for the Paralympic games, um, nine opportunities on the start line. So the target was as a team, we'd come together to grow and develop and challenge in all nine categories. Um, so that brought people together with a greater purpose, which was massive. Um, something bigger than themselves yeah I can yeah. see the power of that yeah and fundamentally it's tricky in a sport where everyone is just going to be insular and focus on their own performance it can make it quite a toxic environment which I think you know the, the greater purpose or a common goal brought people together it's quite a big challenge for a coach then to make sure it's not toxic it's impossible at times I think within a coach in group it can be easy but when um so I'm, a, I'm one of three coaches now on the para um, canoe team as we move forward into the next cycle. And actually, it's easy to become quite siloed when you only have a small number of athletes and a small number of coaches. So it's yeah. a big conversation for us as a team. Yeah. You're also part now of the team. I don't know what the right word is. Um, <laughs> collection of people. Um, from various different sports who are there to champion the increase in females in high-performance sport? Yes. Yeah, we are actually just concluding our um, 
uh, it was almost a, a course or a, a, a venture for a year mm. with our final date of meeting finally, given the fact that we started in lockdown in December. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, a networking opportunity, I think, to learn from other sports, but also a, an eye opener of led by Sophia Jowett. Um, potentially some of the handicaps, <laughs> although that's the wrong word maybe, but um, potential hurdles that females come across in in both high-performance sport, but also just business worlds and that, that equality, yeah. inequality. But yeah, it, it's been an interesting venture. And I think looking at canoeing, we're hugely and have been dominated by Eastern block male coaches that probably have very opposing views to um the current sort of state yeah, of EDI imagine. that we see within our you know community and, and driving within sports so yeah very interesting and eye-opening and have you found it useful because there's a quite a broad mix of sports in that have you picked bits say from from the judo coach that's in there or the athletics coach that you can go oh, actually do you know what that would work really well in this canoeing role yeah, so um, we were assigned our own master coaches, so sort of role model um, or or chaperones, I guess, in a way, through the, the programme. And mine was Paula Dunn, the uh, para-athletics head coach. So um, it, due to lockdown, we, we were all virtual, apart from a, a face-to-face opportunity for her that she came out to see us or see me at the lake, um, which was a yeah awesome chance to see and speak and um, uh, get her to observe my practice and, and have some feedback from a different sporting um, set of eyes which was powerful um, I think it was really interesting there's a lot of similarities when you come to coaching sort of communication style uh, briefing debriefing how are you feeding back what are you feeding back when's the timing of feeding back and um, although she did know of canoeing actually to be fair she's she's known of the sport she's never coached in it or 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 practiced it but I think the commonalities of what a coach offers from sports sport stand true and I think that was quite interesting for me having been pretty insular within canoeing over my times Um, I think some of the some of the speeches or um, talks given by the other coaches show how the sport specific knowledge takes you so far, but a personality and a drive and a passion takes you further yeah. um, as a sport practitioner, be it a, uh, a lead coach, a, a PD, a head coach, or, or just your section coach, but within a group of, of athletes is pretty, um, pretty eye opening there, especially given the physical nature of some of those sports, I guess you'd anticipate a potential sort of friction or clashing a little bit more with, with some of those um, big egoed sports or, or, or fighting sports, you know, they're sometimes quite volatile. Occupational, yeah. But um, actually, how can you be as a coach that, that stands true to yourself as well as what is needed in the environment? So yeah, very interesting. Um, mm. Do you think there's a cor- do you think there's a correlation between the popularity of sports and the personalities within that sport <laughs> you don't have to answer yeah. <laughs> it's pretty that's a pretty loaded question i think you might find naturally some sports attract certain personality types 
you know, arguably the showboating you see at the, the athletics, <laughs> 100 metres is quite different than the athletes you see lining up for the 1500 metres. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean there's a, a trend. And um, I think it, interesting from canoeing and from my understanding is it, it quite often, I'm probably going to get told off for saying this, but attracting people that didn't fit into the most popular social groups and, and sports. Um, you know, the minority sports often hoover up guys and girls that have been spat out by society, either from different, yeah. many different reasons. Um, and actually, it's a safe spot for um, for many reasons. <laughs> so I'd say yes, but I, I am not a fact or figure to prove. No, I know. I just, yeah, it was, it, again, it was, a, it was a fairly loaded, cheeky yeah. question and yeah. it was just there for... <laughs> for effect but I think the point you made there in answering the question around people being spat out by other sports because they didn't fit in just illustrates the importance of other sports Mm. because people who are spat out by the popular sports and and again I'm not saying that that what we're talking about today isn't popular I've loved I've loved watching (laughs) Mainstream, mainstream. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But it gives people an outlet and a way of expressing themselves and a way of being able to do something that they're obviously capable of, even though they've been spat out or rejected by the other sports. Yeah, I think everyone, I think sport and the variety of sport offers everyone an opportunity to be good at something. And humans love to excel and be better than someone else generally. So. Yep. I think the Japan Olympics this <laughs> summer has sort of highlighted those minority sports, particularly with the, you know, particularly with look at skateboarding mm-hmm. and the BMXing, those non-mainstream sports. And hopefully more non-mainstream sports will get well, what I think the recognition and the the coverage they deserve. Yeah, no, it's true. It's and often they look much money. cooler. <laughs> They're so much cooler. Absolutely. Oh, look, I could do keep you up these, or I can do a 180, 360, whatever on my BMX or fly the down a... 12. <laughs> I know, it's just sickening, isn't it? Or, or fly down a white water raft, uh, white water route at high velocity paddling with, with speed and style I mean I think yeah there's a lot to be said for the uh, less mainstream sports and there's probably just a bit of jealousy on my part that I never did them frankly <laughs> yeah I, I always go back to which probably actually it doesn't predate Eurosport I think Eurosport did show it but it was always on Channel 4 in my day which was a programme called Trans World Sport sports, which Paul, yeah. was, Paul knew I was going to say that um, mm-hmm. do you remember Kabaddi I do remember Kabaddi, Kabaddi, oh, Kabaddi, Kabaddi. Had we, Hannah's just, what? What are you talking about? I think um, this might have been before me, so. Yeah, we, at school, we used to love watching the Kabaddi on Transworld Sport. It used to be Transworld Sport, Kabaddi and sumo wrestling on Channel 4 on a Sunday morning before going off to rugby. And they were fantastic. <laughs> and you had, um, there would be skateboarding and the Aussies was what they used to call them groms, which their word for kids that would go off. We're reminiscing the two old men in their forties. Sorry. But um, 
but you know that it did highlight that and there are more channels now and i think more people probably find these things on youtube but yeah mm. definitely yeah hannah's like I'm not keen on kabaddi just just i'm just gonna to google hum- it yeah just to humor us just <laughs> do check out kabaddi it you probably hate it <laughs> No, I, no, I, it's, it's competition. You had to go and invade another team, but you had to keep, you had to hold your breath and say kabaddi, 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 and then get back before they could get you. It oh, sounds, wow, I've never heard of it. It sounds, <laughs> yeah. it sounds very Squid Game esque. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, it's Pakistani or Indian. It was Pakistan, I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry if I've got that wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the two, but it was. It was captivating for a 10-year-old boy to watch that, or a 12-year-old boy. I mean, yeah. yeah. There you go. I think that's probably, probably a good place to end, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I can't take it any further. Yeah, Kabaddi is a good place to, to stop. It's not, it's not kayaking, but, you know. It starts with a K. Yeah. yeah. You sure? <laughs> Hannah, if people want to find you, they want to connect, see what you're doing, where's the best place for them to find you? Oh. Um, if you want to be found. On Yes. Well, um, some social media platforms as everything. Um, there's Twitter and Instagram or a LinkedIn account um, from a professional nature. Uh, I have an incredibly generic name. <laughs> Hannah. Just Brown. Um, but yeah, Hannah underscore L underscore brown you'll find your most uh, social media platforms so you can check me out there right um, give me a year and i'll tag you into me doing a pull-up with 100 kilograms on. excellent <laughs> i want to see all the shoulder rehab work beforehand <laughs> yeah it needs it to be fair because i've got a dodgy right shoulder but yeah it'll be right watch this space <laughs> we'll, we will hold you to that by the way yeah. i'm not i'm not going to make any sort of outlandish claims such as that <laughs> okay let's get oh. some inflatable weights uh, yeah <laughs> the balloons with a sharpie on uh, it. damn it i've got the weights in the garage so there's no excuse <laughs> yeah give it a go see if you can move it yeah that'll be tomorrow's that'll be tomorrow morning's effort yeah before before six <laughs> brilliant um thanks thanks anna that's been really good really enjoyed it Yeah, no, thank you for having me.